0: It's June 2002, and in the city of Shelby, North Carolina, summer is staking its claim. Temperatures are up in the high 80s Fahrenheit, and only a light breeze stirs the flags that fly above the Cleveland Regional Medical Center. A beautiful day that begs to be enjoyed, but not everyone has the strength to manage it. Inside the main building, Earl Mickey Parker can barely lift his head from the pillow to enjoy the sunshine that streams through his window. Earl is dying, he knows it won't be long now, days maybe, weeks at a push. Cancer has run a ragged course through his body, stripping what strength he has left, confining him to what will soon be his deathbed. The door opens and he turns his head to see his visitor. It's his granddaughter, Lori. She breezes in, pulls up a chair, and starts chattering away, filling him in on family gossip. She knows he's not going to get better, but he loves her all the more for not dwelling on it. Any other day, he'd soak it all in, muster up a smile, ask her about her plans. Not today, though. Today, he needs her to listen, not talk. There's something that's weighed him down like an anchor around his neck for 36 years. With the end so close, if he doesn't do this now, he may never get another chance. He has lived with this secret for half his life, but he can't bring himself to take it to the grave. Laurie gives a confused smile when he interrupts her. I've done some bad things with my life, he tells her. And before I can move on, I need to get them off my chest. Before she can ask what he's talking about, he gestures for her to close the door. He doesn't want to be interrupted. When he sits back down, he sees the concern etched on her face. This isn't going to be easy. He knows she won't look at him the same way again once she hears this. She might even get up and walk out, leaving him to die alone. It's a chance he's willing to take. Earl starts to talk, and as he does, the memories from four decades ago wash over him. He paints a picture of a younger version of himself. How he and a friend had been partying in late July 1966. How they'd been worse for wear the morning of July 27th. And crossed paths with an 11-year-old girl named Brenda Sue Brown on their way home. Earl tells her how Brenda Sue was found murdered later that day. And how he has known all these years what happened to her. He was there. He saw it happen. And he knows who killed her. Brenda Sue's family have had suspects paraded in front of them before. But could this confession finally give them the closure they've been praying for? At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chest. from murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Earl Parker, of the words he spoke as he lay dying, about a tragic day in July, 1966, when a young girl lost her life, a small town community rocked by a brutal killing, events that stoked already heated racial tensions in the deep South, and a shared secret between two friends that if true have denied a family justice for nearly 40 years i'm stephania hagman and this is deathbed confessions Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Earl Parker was born in 1928. Not much is known of his early years, but as an adult, he's no stranger to run-ins with the law. In 1954, 12 years before the tragic events in Shelby will unfold, 26-year-old Earl and a friend of his, Thurman Price, were arrested in Patterson Springs, North Carolina. The charges were serious. It's alleged that the two men raped a 12-year-old girl, Shirley Morrison. In January the following year, they both pled guilty. Incredibly, even though the court accepted their plea and convicted them, neither man did a single day of jail time for it. Instead, Earl and Thurman each received a three to five year suspended sentence. The court added in a number of further conditions, stipulating that they must both hold down a job, not drink alcohol, and pay court costs of $240. For the nature of the crime, this seems absurdly lenient but the pair walked free to continue their lives. Little record exists of Earl Parker or Thurman Price's activities for over a decade, but when they do resurface in 1966, it's a mere five miles north in the town of Shelby, North Carolina. The 60s are in full swing. It's a decade packed with indulgence, intrigue, and incident. It's a period that includes the assassination of JFK, Beatlemania hitting the United States, and a man walking on the moon. Events that will last in the memory for years to come. For one Shelby family, though, these historic dates will pale in significance compared to a day in late July of 1966. The day when their world was torn apart by tragedy. The day that Brenda Sue Brown was killed. It's Wednesday, the 27th of July, 1966, and even before breakfast, there are raised voices in the Brown household. 11-year-old Brenda Sue argues with her younger sister, Patricia, demanding the return of her powder puff compact mirror. It's a harmless enough argument in itself, but one that is the catalyst to kick off a life-changing day for the whole family. Their mother, Gladys, separates them in her usual role as referee, She's feeling a little frayed around the edges, having not long finished a night shift. A frazzled Gladys is in desperate need of sleep and makes a decision she'll come to regret every day of her life that follows. Patricia is booked to attend a number of Head Start classes at the local elementary school. These are free sessions designed to promote school readiness for children from low-income families. Gladys asks Brenda Sue to walk Patricia the two blocks from their house to her class. Brenda Sue protests, but her mother is in no mood for arguments. Gladys watches the two girls head out of the front door and disappear down the street. She has no way of knowing it, but only one of them will come home alive. Maybe it's the lack of sleep, but Gladys doesn't get alarmed right away when Brenda Sue doesn't return. It's only two blocks in either direction. She might have stopped to chat with friends along the way. It's not until her daughter has been gone for an hour and a half that she starts to get concerned. By 10.15 a.m., she's worried enough to knock on neighbors' doors, asking them if Brenda Sue has stopped by. It's the same response at every house. Nobody has seen her. Gladys goes back home to get her car and starts driving around the local streets, stopping to ask passersby and other motorists if they've spotted her daughter. With every shake of the head, her anxiety levels keep rising. An hour later, in full panic mode now, she enlists the help of the authorities. A search team is put together from the Shelby Rescue Squad, a local volunteer organization. Together they comb the surrounding area, retracing Brenda Sue's steps to and from the school. They know she dropped her little sister off safely at her Head Start class, but after that, there's literally no trace of her. As the day wears on, the search party widens the net to include the surrounding woods in a last ditch effort. Perhaps Brenda Sue is playing a game, hiding in an attempt to prank her mother. Then, as the sun begins to sink below the horizon, one of those searching makes a peculiar find, a set of clothes neatly folded on top of a pile of branches and leaves. Upon closer inspection, there's something hidden beneath the branches. When they move them and look underneath, they realize they've made a heartbreaking discovery. The body of 11-year-old Brenda Sue Brown. It's clear after a brief inspection that the young girl had been murdered. Whoever killed her has made an attempt to hide her body, covering her up with a blanket of freshly cut branches and leaves. The red and white dress she had been wearing that morning was folded neatly and left on top of the makeshift blanket of foliage. Police make one more chilling discovery at the scene. A few feet away, a rock with visible traces of blood. They've found their murder weapon. Everything about the murder rocks the small town of Shelby. The tender young age of the victim. The savage way Brenda Sue was killed. The bizarre staging of the scene. An autopsy shows her skull has been fractured in 12 places by the rock, which forensics have confirmed was used to beat her with. One small mercy for the Brown family is that despite being found naked, there are no signs of Brenda Sue having been sexually assaulted. That in itself is puzzling to police though. If the motive wasn't sexual, then why was she stripped nude? After examining the scene and surrounding area, detectives come up with their working theory that the killer was on foot and stumbled across Brenda Sue while walking. Their reasoning is linked to lack of witnesses. They say that with heavy traffic on South Lafayette, it would have been difficult for someone to pull over, grab Brenda Sue, and force her into the woods without being seen. After canvassing the area, the police find no eyewitnesses to the crime, but their interviews do provide them with two suspects. The first is an unidentified bald white man who had apparently exposed himself to Brenda Sue's sister Patricia a few days before the murder. With only a partial physical description to go on, though, this lead peters out quickly. The second suspect attracts much more attention. 13-year-old Robert Roseborough lives just a few hundred yards from where Brenda Sue was found, and several people tell police they saw him in the fields nearby on the morning she was killed. In 1960s America, it's no surprise that a young African-American boy like Robert might be distrustful to the police. When they question him, he says nothing, not a word. Thanks in part to his lack of responses and the absence of any physical evidence, the questioning is brief, and Robert is soon released. In two years' time, however, Robert will again be the subject of police scrutiny during a shocking series of events. It's the 22nd of June, 1968, almost two years since Brenda Sue Brown was brutally murdered. Her death created a cultural shift that still ripples through the town of Shelby, North Carolina. People who used to leave doors and windows unlocked now secure them before they leave for work or head up to bed. Mary's Cannon Towel Outlet is a shop on Dixon Boulevard, southeast of Shelby Town Center. The owner, Mary Helen Williams, is checking stock when her mother-in-law calls at 10.45 a.m. She doesn't know it at the time, but it's the last time she'll speak to Mary. Thirty minutes later, a prospective customer, Mrs. Albergini, tries the door, but finds it locked. She knocks, but there's no answer. She then turns to speak to her daughter, who's sitting inside their car at the curb. And when she looks back, there's a flash of movement inside. Worried, Mrs. Alberghini heads to the shop door and calls the police. Officers Blankenship and Lowry arrive at about 11.30 a.m. They try opening the front and back doors, but they're both locked. Lowry peers inside and sees Robert Roseborough crouching down, pistol in hand. The body of a woman lies on the floor by his feet, and Lowry also sees what looks like blood next to her. They shout for the teenager to come out with his hands up, but his response is to disappear into the depths of the shop. Instead of storming the building, the officers break a window and lob in a tear gas canister. It has the desired effect, and moments later, the fumes force Robert to walk calmly out of the shop with his hands raised in the air. He's unarmed, the gun Lowry cited earlier presumably left inside. They quickly take him into custody and move in to secure the scene once the tear gas is cleared. The body is that of the owner, Mary Helen Williams. She's naked and it's clear even to the untrained eye that she has been badly beaten. That isn't what killed her though. She has been stabbed four times in the chest, once in the abdomen. While the manner of her death is different from Brenda Sue Brown, some believe it follows a similar pattern. Like Brenda Sue, Mary had been stripped nude yet no sexual assault had occurred. There are renewed claims from police and locals alike that Robert may have been involved in the murder two years back, but authorities decide to focus on securing a conviction in the Williams murder before they worry about reopening Brenda Sue's case. Robert's trial is scheduled for the following year, but the authorities fear he may fall victim to violence before then. The white supremacist group, the Ku Klux Klan, are rumored to make threats towards him and Robert has secretly moved to a jail in a neighboring county. When the trial finally comes around in 1969, it lasts only two days. Robert pleads not guilty, denying he killed Williams. He claims police aren't being truthful in how they present the facts and that he cannot possibly receive a fair trial given the public's heavily biased response to the case. Robert and his attorney also argue that he is not being tried by a jury of his peers given that all the jurors are middle-class white people. With there being no robbery and no sexual assault, his attorney argues there is no motive. However, the defense is unable to provide any physical evidence or alternate suspects to prove that Robert did not commit the crime. The state, on the other hand, does have several pieces of damning evidence along with witness testimony. While no one saw him murder Williams, he was the only person present when police arrived. Furthermore, he was holding a pistol, though later it was revealed to contain blanks. The state's forensics experts also confirm the blood type on Robert's clothes matches Williams. Items found at the scene are confirmed to belong to Robert, including a pair of sunglasses that a store clerk says she sold him three days before the murder, and pocket knife seen in Robert's possession by another witness in the run-up to the killing. One of the most incriminating pieces of evidence is the cigarette lighter that police found in Robert's pocket when they searched him at the scene. It's engraved with the name Bob and is identified by William's daughter as belonging to her mother. Also found in his pockets were keys to both doors in the shop, as well as one that opened the cash register. The jury takes just one hour to deliberate. Robert is found guilty as charged. Though he is just 16 years old, he is given the death penalty, but the sentence is overturned in 1971 and lessened to life imprisonment. In the eyes of many, Robert Roseboro's conviction in the Williams murder is as good as confirmation of his involvement in the Brenda Sue Brown case, but it's nothing more than a wave of local sentiment. Nothing about the Mary Helen Williams case definitively ties him to Brenda Sue's murder, and he has taken away to serve out his years for one murder, with the second case left to grow cold. That's the way it stays for 35 years. No new leads, no new suspects. Brenda Sue's family are left to pick up the pieces of their shattered lives knowing that her killer has never been convicted. Brenda Sue's father, Lloyd, dies in 2004, never knowing for sure who was responsible for his little girl's death. That tide starts to change in 2005, though. It's not clear what prompts renewed efforts from Brenda Sue's sisters, Patricia Buff and Mary McSwain, but they spend months petitioning the Shelby Police Department to reopen the case. Detectives eventually agree to take another look, but when they go to review the evidence, they find the case files missing. It takes four full days of combing through archived files and storage before they're found. They're in an unmarked box. And whether it's a cruel twist of fate or intentional filing by a previous officer, Brenda Sue's case files are in the same box as those of Mary Helen Williams. The relief at finding them is short-lived though. Most of the physical evidence has disappeared. The list of missing items includes Brenda Sue's dress, underwear, shoes, the powder puff she and Patricia had argued over, fingernail scrapings, blood samples. Even the rock used to kill her has vanished. The last person known to have the full inventory is Sheriff Allen back in August 1966, and he has since passed away. What's happened to it in the intervening decades is anyone's guess. The only piece of physical evidence left is a bloody palm print that had been taken from Brenda Sue's shoe, presumably left by her killer. The police and family agree to an emotional next step, the exhumation of Brenda Sue's body to see what additional evidence they can gather with the advances in forensic science. They head to the cemetery on May 15, 2006, but this too proves to be a strikeout. After four decades, the wooden casket she was buried in has practically disintegrated and only a handful of bones remain. Six days later, Brenda Sue is laid to rest for a second time in Sunset Cemetery in Shelby. Even now, after all these years, it feels like the Brown family's fortunes haven't gotten any better. Sometimes, though, all it takes is a little luck. That's exactly what comes their way a few months later. It starts with a decision by the local newspaper, The Shelby Star, to run a 13-part 40th anniversary series about Brenda Sue's murder. Shortly after the series hits newsstands, they get the biggest break in the case to date. A woman by the name of Lori Lyle contacts the Shelby police. She has read the articles, and even though the events happened before she was even born, she tells them she knows the answer to the 40-year-old mystery. She's ready to tell them who killed Brenda Sue Brown. Lori gives police two names. The first is her own grandfather, Earl Mickey Parker. Earl died from cancer four years ago in 2002. But before he did, he told Lori a tale from his hospital bed, one that made her jaw drop. She recalls his words as best she can, the way Earl told it, on the 26th of July, 1966, the night before Brenda Sue was killed, he had walked to a local bootlegger's house. Amongst the people he met there was a friend of his by the name of Thurman Price. The two men drank through the night, emerging well after sunrise, and decided to walk back along South Lafayette Street together. they had already shared more than just drinks over the years, having been jointly convicted of rape back in the 50s, and in the most tragic of coincidences, happened to be passing by as Brenda Sue was on her way home. Earl and Thurman snuck up behind her with the intention of dragging her into the woods to rape her. Price then grabbed Brenda Sue and together they dragged her through a field towards a wooded area. But the crime hadn't gone unseen. There was a little black boy playing in a field, Earl told Lori, and Price screamed after him to get home. This, detectives presume, was Robert Roseboro. According to Earl, Brenda Sue hadn't gone willingly. She fought back as hard as she could when they reached the trees, scratching Thurman Price. This infuriated him, and he looked around, grabbed a nearby rock, and hit Brenda Sue on the head. Price allegedly then told Earl they had to kill her because, in his words, they would go away and do real time this time. Lori Lyle's account of her grandfather's confession included a description of the crime scene that matched exactly what police had found back in 1966. The folded clothes, how they had cut branches down to cover the body, the blood-stained rock left nearby. It's not clear why Lori waited four years to share this information with the authorities. Maybe she didn't believe him. Maybe she didn't want to. Whatever her reasons, her statement sets wheels in motion that have long been still. On February 12, 2007, following an extensive investigation sparked by Earl Parker's deathbed confession, Shelby Police Lieutenant Tammy Endicott calls Gladys Brown and her two daughters to the police station. Endicott sits the women at a table and tells them that today, she'll be arresting Thurman Price, now 77, in connection with Brenda Sue's murder. Thurman still lives in the area. It hasn't gone unnoticed that his home is close to where Brenda Sue's body was found. Although records show he purchased the house in 1973. And it isn't clear if he lived there back in 1966. Hours later, the three women stand with their arms locked together outside the entrance of the Cleveland County Sheriff's Office. They look on in silence as a squad car rolls into the parking lot. Endicott steps out of the car and leads Thurman Price, dressed in a gray sweatsuit and handcuffs, toward the jail. A reporter who has gotten wind of the arrest steps forward, asking Thurman if he had killed Brenda Sue. No, Lord, no, he says. But there's no time for any more questions before the door to the station closes. While in custody, Thurman strongly denies any knowledge or involvement in the murder. He is charged with first-degree murder, but still managed to get released on a $50,000 bail bond four days later. As a longtime resident, and an elderly man protesting his innocence, he's not seen as a flight risk. The police continue their investigation in earnest, and three months later, the case sees a second exhumation. This time, it's Earl Parker's body, which by a cruel twist of fate, is buried in the same cemetery as Brenda Sue. Police are hoping they can examine his remains to see if his palm print is a match to the bloody imprint found on Brenda Sue's shoe. Once again, time is their enemy. Earl's body has decomposed too badly to allow a print to be taken. Yet another case of one step forward, two steps back for the Brown family. Indeed, despite the deathbed confession, the case moves slowly. Too slowly for the Browns, who are constantly asked by friends and neighbors when a trial date will be set. District Attorney Rick Schaffer remains tight-lipped. All he'll let slip is a comment in December 2007 when he says the case should hinge upon a particular piece of evidence being admitted to the trial. He doesn't elaborate, however, as to what that evidence might be. There'll be a separate hearing to determine this before a trial date is set. Even with the renewed interest and manpower poured back into the investigation, it's another two years before the next landmark moment in the case. On the 9th of February, 2010, Patricia Buff and her sister, Mary McSwain, arrive in court for a crucial evidentiary hearing. It's been two and a half years since Price's arrest. The slow progress has, by the DA's own admission, come about due to the age of the case, with more recent ones getting priority on the docket. The question before the court is whether or not the deathbed confession made by Earl Parker should be admissible. It's crucial to the DA's case, despite the fact it's secondhand via Earl's granddaughter. The defense team argues it should be thrown out seeing as it didn't come directly from Earl himself. The DA, however, sticks to his guns, pointing out the remarkable similarities between Lori Lyle's retelling of Earl Parker's words and what police know to be true based on the crime scene. It's not clear whether this is the evidence that the DA had referred to in his 2007 comment, but regardless, it's a potential turning point for both sides. They look on as Thurman Price walks slowly into the courtroom wearing a gray suit and dark tie. It's the slow measured gait of an old man. He doesn't meet their gaze, instead choosing to look at the judge. There's a surprise guest appearance at the hearing. Robert Roseborough is called by a witness for the prosecution. The DA outlines Earl Parker's version of events and asks him what he saw that day. Robert replies that it was 40 years ago and that he wouldn't know Brenda Sue if she were standing there right now. It's no help to the prosecution and the argument for including the confession could go either way. Patricia and Mary hold their breath as the judge starts to speak. For once, it's good news for them, not so much for Thurman Price. The Cleveland County judge says he will allow Earl Parker's confession to be admitted as evidence. It's one step towards closure for Brenda Sue's family, In an interview outside the courthouse, Patricia says, We just hugged one another and was crying and said we made it this far. She talks about her memories of 1966, saying, It was hell, really, because we weren't allowed to go anywhere. and just shut our life down. It also emerges from court records that Lori Lyle had made a call to Patricia back in 2006 when she came forward, telling her about Thurman Price but leaving out her grandfather's involvement at the time. When asked what it means to her that they'll soon be going to trial, she says, to know that you're going to trial is just so awesome because that's what we've been fighting for, to get to that trial date and we know we'll win. The Browns' enthusiasm is short-lived though. Two more years pass without a trial date or any real insight as to the delay. Frustrations are running high amongst Brenda Sue's family. Thurman Price's health is in decline, He's in and out of the hospital after being diagnosed with cancer. Time, it turns out, is what decides the case. On the 4th of August, 2012, with still no sign of a trial date, Thurman Price loses his battle, passing away aged 83. His daughter, Nikki Traeger, continues to protest his innocence after he's gone, blaming the stressful, agonizing wait to clear his name, as well as his cancer as the reason for his death. She says she has asked him outright before he died if he had anything to do with Brenda Sue's death. His response had been unequivocal, saying, I did not kill that child. A journalist from Eyewitness News asks her if she would like to see the DA continue with the trial. Absolutely, she says without hesitation, keen to still clear his name in a court of law. Both the DA and Thurman's attorney confirm, however, that with the defendant dead, The case cannot be tried. On the other side of the case, Brenda Sue's family call Thurman's death a welcome end to a painful wait for them. It's a little hard to take, but it's over. It's finally over, says Patricia. There's one question, however, that she'll never have the answer to. Why was her sister killed? Most believe that the only two men that know for sure are both six feet under. David Teddy, Thurman Price's attorney, gives an interview stating his client's claims of innocence right up to the bitter end. The state would have had difficulty proving this case, Teddy said. Through the years, evidence has been destroyed or lost. I don't think a jury trial would have resulted in a guilty verdict. While Thurman remains innocent in the eyes of the law, the community as a whole might have struggled to accept an acquittal, The only truly innocent person in this story is the one who was not in the courtroom, Brenda Sue Brown. Next week on Deathbed Confessions. We meet Tony Wakeford, an elderly man and husband who was killed after admitting to having an affair during his 50-year marriage. Tony Wakeford was laying in hospital close to death when he admitted to his wife that he'd been unfaithful during their marriage. Believing him to be dying, she accepted the news calmly and without complaint. But then, he didn't die. Tony and his wife were forced to continue their strained marriage together for five more years, but all love was lost. News of the affair turned the couple's love into hatred, and Tony's wife spiraled into depression and darkness after discovering the other woman, had been her best friend. After five years of marital agony, Tony's wife finally sought revenge on her husband's unfaithfulness and stabbed his frail body to death with a kitchen knife. It was a crime of betrayal and passion. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Rob Scragg. Supervising editor Kevin Fam. Sound design by Matthias Torresolé. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Matthias Torresolé and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.